Welcome to Job Tales. I'm Laura Leoncini and this is the podcast where you listen to professional stories from all walks of life and find the job that suits you. Today, my guest is Peter McGraw, professor of marketing and psychology at the University of Boulder, Colorado. We will talk about academia, the Humor Research Lab, and the single person's guide to a remarkable life. Peter, thanks so much for being a guest at my podcast, Job Tales. I am very keen to speak with you because it's been, you know, it's been a while. Troy put us in touch and uh, since our first encounter, I've been wanting to ask you a few questions about your profession and your, about your path specifically. So can you tell me in a nutshell what you do today? Well, I would say I have a day job and that is I'm a professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder, marketing and psychology professor. I write dry, esoteric academic papers. I attempt to teach lively, esoteric classes. And then I am a full professor, so I sit in dreadfully boring administrative <laughs> committee meetings. And that's what boring. pays the bills. Okay. I like to believe that my professional life is much, much more interesting than that. So at one point, you were in, into, you know, studying so that you could become a professor. I mean, it's a long path, right? Working in academia. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I will say this. I got the idea to become a professor at age 18 as a freshman in college as I was uh, transitioning out of engineering school. I basically did half a semester, realized I did not want to be an engineer, and engineering mm. did not want me. My lower middle class, working class family, who were thrilled that I was in college, asked me a, a rational decision, which was, what are you going to do with this psychology degree that you're, you're switching into? And I, I sort of arbitrarily responded, I'm going to become a professor. Um, <laughs> that know, was the rational, the, the rational answer. Uh, well, you know, it made sense for me at the moment. I was loving uh, university life. You know, these classes were fascinating. You know, they were they were intellectually vibrant, and um, they were explaining a lot of of what seemed to be unexplainable to an eighteen year old, uh, you know, boy transitioning to to being a man. And I was like, I want to do that. I want to read books, and I want to teach, and I want to mentor young minds. Nine years later, I found myself in. Uh, the only graduate program that would accept me at The Ohio State University to study the field, which is now called behavioral economics. It wasn't it didn't even have that name back then. Yeah, I do. I do remember I have interviewed a couple of people about behavioral economics and it was it was a completely new thing. So that means that you were in, interested in psychology, you study psychology and then you you specialized in behavioral economics. Yes. My path from 18 to 27 was a bit circuitous. I ended up working actually at a university. I was managing a residence hall. Okay. I was a hall director, eight stories, 400 students, 25 wow. staff members at age 24. It was a daunting, chaotic task. No kidding. And this, this was in 1994. Um, this was before you know, books like Predictably Irrational or Thinking Fast and Slow or uh, the Gladwell style books of Blink and so on had had kind of captured the imagination of people, you know, these pop science books. But there's a book by a researcher at Cornell called How We Know What Isn't So, The Fallibility of 
Human Judgment in Everyday Life by uh, Tom Gilovich. And I read that book. It was a book about judgment and decision making. And I just was like, I want to study that. Yeah. And so I went about studying that. I tried to work with Tom, um, wasn't able to get into Cornell, wasn't able to get into dozens and dozens of universities, but a young, bright researcher who had just arrived at Ohio State, Barbara Mellers, um, and her husband, Phil Tetlock, you know, who are their, they're just stars in the field now, had just arrived there. And she, she literally pulled my my application out of the reject pile. I had applied to the social psychology program. They said, no way, no thank you, Peter McGraw. And she was in this quantitative psychology program and saw that I wanted to study decision-making. And she very generously, kindly accepted me into the, the program and was a wonderful mentor. Nine years, you say. Huh? So it really did take a long time of your life to you know, become mature in in the field and in becoming then a professor, I guess, as well. Is it? Yeah, that was just to get into the grad program. It took me three tries. You know, I had to get through undergrad. I did a master's degree along the way. I I was, Laura, I would say this. I wasn't a slam dunk candidate. Mm. I had good but not great grades. I had good but not great GRE scores. I had good but not great research experience. And so I needed a break. Mm-hmm. And I, I got that break, thankfully. And then I spent five years in that program, just sucking the marrow out of it. I, I loved being a graduate student. Um, it was challenging, but it was exciting. It felt right. And then I went off to Princeton to do a postdoc with Danny Kahneman, you know, one of the fathers of behavioral economics. And the week that I arrived on campus, he won the Nobel Prize in economics, oh, wow. which really put really put these ideas on the map. Yeah. And so I got, you know, I had a, a, a fun, wild ride uh, at Princeton for a couple of years before um, arriving at my job, which I still have. This was uh, 2002 to 2004. And so there you come. And how long have you been a professor? 19 years now. And at, all at the University of Colorado. I mean, I've I've done little little gigs. You know, I've done some teaching for London Business School. I've done some teaching for UC San Diego. Mm. Um, I've done some sabbaticals, but my my employer, who's now stuck with me now that I have a uh, tenure, is at, at Colorado. And and yeah, we're I'm in my 19th year. Amazing. But that's not all that you are, right? Thank goodness. <laughs> I mean, if I spoke to other people, they would be happy being what you are. <laughs> I, <laughs> Chapter I one. Get it. I reckon. <laughs> yes, I get it. And you know, I recognize that peop- there are people who would kill for this job, and yeah. there's people who would like to kill me and take and this, take your job uh, <laughs> and take my job. There's no doubt about that. And you know, and I would say this: I'm not ungrateful. You know, I I feel very fortunate to have climbed the academic mountain. Mm. Um, I mean, I made great sacrifices for it, working long hours, giving up, you know, opportunities, spending Saturday nights in the lab, et cetera. But I did it of my own volition and I did it because I wanted it. But I also do believe that there's still growth to be had and there's still new challenges. So I envision academic life like a train trip, Hmm. right? So you, you get on, you know, and in August of, of 1997, I got on the train, you know, and I was a graduate student. And then you have stops along the way, your master's thesis, your qualifying exam, your, your dissertation, your postdoc, your first job, tenure, you know, full professor, et cetera. And what happens is you get the full professor, if you're lucky, 
right? Yeah. If you're good, you're lucky, yeah. uh, you work hard, all those things, you know, is a nice uh, cocktail. And you get there and you, you kind of have a choice. No one ever prepares you for this. And that is you can keep riding the train just as you have. And you can keep going to your committee meetings and you can keep, keep teaching your classes and you can keep writing those dry esoteric papers. Or the really only viable option is you get into administration, you become a dean, mm. let's say. You know, I think that one of the great elements of academia, as I said, if you're good, if you're lucky, if you work hard, is that you do have some autonomy and some flexibility to take chances, pick interesting topics, work on different ideas, publish in different mediums, and so on. And so I I get bored easily. Mm. And I want to do everything in life. I don't yeah. want to just do one thing my whole life. I hear you, know? you. Yeah. You, you need and, stimulus and constantly. I need to be. Exactly. And so, and I'm a bachelor. So I wasn't, you know, I, I remember being 38 and thinking, I'm probably not going to have a family. Hmm. And so I was like, how do I want to spend my middle years? How do I want to spend that energy, that money, that attention beyond just those three elements of the job? And so that's when I started to hatch some grand plans. Tell me more about your grand plans. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I decided that I wanted to step, take a step outside of the academy and that I wanted to try to become a public academic, public intellectual. I know I sound like a jerk using those words, but I wanted to engage with the broader world yeah, and not just the nerds at other universities around the world. I started writing books. I started to um, give public talks and I started to really investigate ideas. And at that time, let's call it, you know, chapter two in my life, I had stumbled on this question of what makes things funny, this age old question going mm -hmm. back 2,500 plus years. And I set out to crack the humor code. But to do that, I realized I had to venture out into the real world that I couldn't just study it in the laboratory. So you're the director of the Humor Research Lab. Yes, we affectionately refer to it as Hurl. Hurl, yeah. Yes, Hurl. So you created that from scratch? I did. You know, one of the things that happened was I, I found myself teaching in a business school and teaching marketing. And what I realized was, and I actually I learned this from my postdoc advisor, uh, Danny Kahneman. I remember him saying one day, naming things matters. Like if you have a theory, you should name it well, because there's often competing theories and they often look alike. And the one that wins is often the one that has a better name. <laughs> and so when I, I, I remember distinctly when I decided I was going to launch a lab, I, I knew I needed a lab to answer this question. I knew I needed help. It's a, such a big, it's an audacious question, right? A question that Socrates and Plato and Kant and Hobbes and Freud tried to tackle. So how's this guy, you know, this regular guy, you know, academic going to, to do what these folks were unable to do? And I realized I need not just science. I, I need not just experiments. I need other smart minds. I need, hmm. I need help. So I, I launched this lab and I wanted to name it well. And so I, I remember just sort of writing down all these words, laughter, amusement, science, research, laboratory, et cetera. And I just, you know, it took me about 45 minutes to put them in the right order and to come up with Hurl. Okay. You know, which is, again, it helps. It helps get attention and it helps spread the word. So it is a, a lab where the main goal is to, to what? To figure out the humor code. 
we said it is to investigate the causes and consequences of humor, mm. right? So what makes something funny? And then also, what are the implications for something being funny or not funny? And that was in parallel to, of course, you being a professor and having a full-time job, writing your esoteric papers and, and following students, because that's a huge part, right? Yeah. It was. I mean, it was sort of seamless part of my job. Now, I would say this, not everybody agreed with my choice to study this thing. I remember um, having a conversation with a fellow academic who, you know, offhandedly, smugly said to me, you know, Peter, I'm really impressed with your humor project because it's a career killer. <laughs> And so, you know, academics have their You know, they have their opinions. Okay. It has certainly, his prediction never has been borne out, yeah. thankfully. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it, obviously you are yeah, very interested in, uh, in the human being, in its multifaceted forms. <laughs> and then, of course, as I hear you, you know, not knowing you, there's the behavioral economics, there's the research for what, what makes something funny, what is humor, and then being a mm -hmm. professor, so a constant interaction. Do you think that now, you know, having been where you are today, and having done that path, are you satisfied with where you're at? And is there something missing? And if there is, what is it? I would say that I... I have a great deal of gratitude for how far I've come, but I would say that there is this sense of empowerment. So if you back up, I, you know, I came from this family where not everybody goes to college and mm. no one goes to graduate school. And my family's filled with nice people. You know, they're just sort of regular people. They're good people, but they they don't have the same aspirations that I have seen to have. Like I, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to walk the great wall. I wanted to see the sunrise at the pyramids of Giza. You know, mm -hmm. I wanted to have adventures. You know, I, I eventually found myself performing at a professional comedy club and pitching TV shows and, you know, just tussling with really challenging tasks and ideas yeah. And so I would say that I'm not satisfied. I would say I'm happy. I've said I, I love my life, but there is part of me. I mean, I feel, I feel young still. I'm 53. I feel really young in body and spirit and mind, unlike a lot of 53-year-olds who, who feel pretty beaten down mm -hmm. by, by life. And so there's part of me that says, well, I've come this far right from that 18-year-old making an arbitrary choice about becoming a professor and then grinding it out with enough talent and enough creativity and enough luck to make it happen, that I think, what else might I be able to do? Yeah. Right. How far can I take this, especially leveraging being a professor? So I'll tell you a quick anecdote. When I was working on my first book, The Humor Code, I was teamed up with a journalist And he would regularly ask me to email someone to get an interview. And the reason he would do that is he said, they'll respond to your email because you're a professor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because it's, you know, versus I'm a journalist, right? They'll delete my email, but if, but you, they'll, they'll respond to. And so, you know, this opens doors. It opens opportunities. This is a high status job. Mm -hmm. And then also it's a job that I can leverage, Right? So I have flexibility. I have freedom. I can choose my topics. 
Um, no one, no one says I need this report by Friday. Well, in some cases they do, but for the most part, you know, I have some degree of autonomy and flexibility. It's very interesting because you, what I am learning when by doing this podcast, you know, where I interview people about their jobs and their path, there's there's never a straight line. And oftentimes uh, people think they know where they're going, but then they actually end up uh, going like multiple different ways. And mm-hmm. where they end up is sometimes better or worse than what they thought. And so it, it's really like super exciting. And that's what also life is about. And uh, never, never read a straight line. And there's also many ways to get to that same, to, to a same point. The more interested you are in life and in, and in subject matters and, and in others, the, the, uh, sometimes the more difficult it is. Because I wish, for example, that I had been, you know, that I'd known what I wanted when I was 15. Maybe I was, uh, if I had been a math genius or, <laughs> then I knew that mm-hmm. math was going to be my, my world. But it was not the case. I'm more like you, very, you know, very intrigued by the humankind and uh, by doing many things and not, not stopping in just one way of life. And it, and it did cost tremendously also in my life so it's uh it seems to be a very you know the journey like the train that you're mentioning is um it's a train that doesn't stop and where is it leading you now you know we're of course i'd like to talk about your solo third chapter yeah yes (laughs) um well i have actually replaced the train metaphor with a sailboat metaphor okay so now from train to to, to boat it's a sailboat so a different mode of transportation so i i um i got this idea from scott barry kaufman Hmm. who is a psychologist a humanistic psychologist and he he talks about he has a model of well-being Um, i have a model of well-being which um, shares this uh, notion of a sailboat which is that, you know, you can think of your, your life, you know, you want to build a strong hull, right? You want a, a strong foundation for your life. And in, in my model, I talk about having, taking care of your health, your wealth, and your, and your community, your connections. And that, that hull keeps you afloat in rough waters. Mm-hmm. It also provides the means to travel through those waters. I call that your foundation. But then to flourish, you need a big sail, and you can flourish in these many different ways. You can flourish through purpose. You can flourish through engagement. You can flourish through positive emotions. But the idea being is that there's no one way to flourish, right? So there's no one trip. You can ima- imagine a sea with 8 billion sailboats. Some of them are languishing. Some of them are sinking. But others are really catching wind. And they're going to different ports. Mm. And so I feel like I'm on a sailboat now to a, a much different port than I was previously at when I was studying humor. I'm now looking at the opportunities and challenges of being single. Yeah. That we were experiencing a rise of single living at a global level. Uh, the world is built for two and we're seeing major social cultural shifts associated with that. And so I have been investigating this. I have a podcast that supports singles, celebrates their singlehood. And I've been writing about this and beginning research projects and and so on. And so now I'm, you know, on a completely different path than I was just, uh, you know, three, four years ago. Yeah. And your podcast is called so that the others can look for you. <laughs> sure. It's called Solo, the Single Person's Guide to a Remarkable a Life. Remarkable Life. And I'm following yeah. it and, and I like it. it. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. And I, you know, so I maybe I should ask you, how would you characterize the podcast for someone who uh, is intrigued? 
Well, it is an interesting approach, and it, I, I love the fact that you're doing it to destigmatize the fact of living solo. And I like the choice of your word, like doing solo and not single, because it does encompass, you know, a full, a full life, a life of not being like a, not a loser kind of solo, <laughs> not a loser kind of single, but a, a full fledged, complete and satisfying life, which uh, mm -hmm. is in parallel with other people's lives that are in a couple, you know, in a relationship or not just not solo. So I like the, the fact that you have guests talking about on different aspects of being of being solo for you know from not being married and not not having kids and uh and so forth what that entails and uh, how it's mm -hmm. projected in society my question to you would be is it a choice or is it a, a present condition or a long-term condition for you well i like to say that that solo has a big tent So we can accommodate, you know, lots of different lifestyles, lots of different perspectives. So there are many people, many listeners who are what I call single by choice. Mm. They, you know, they are not interested in dating or a relationship at the moment or forever. Some of them have been there, done that. They've been divorced. They've been divorced more than once, <laughs> you know, or they've always sort of been loners They have other other more important things to do. Mm -hmm. And that's actually a rather large group. Uh, according to Pew Research, half of American adults are single. Half of those single adults are not interested in, in dating or a relationship at the moment. So if someone is single listening to this, they should know that it's completely normal to be single and it's completely normal to be single and not looking to be not single. Yeah. So that's a big group. Then there's the single by chance folks, the folks who want a relationship, but are struggling. They're struggling for a variety of reasons. Some, you know, really heartbreaking reasons. You know, they, they are having physical health problems. They have financial problems. They have mental health problems. They have trouble connecting with other people. Um, maybe they just live in a place that has really terrible dating options, you know, and so they're a little bit stuck and my heart goes out to them. Yeah. And I spend a lot of time trying to talk about how do you improve yourself? How do you make your life better for yourself first? But the, you know, the potential benefit of that is you, you could become a more appealing partner. Yeah. And then the last group, which I think is the most interesting group, is the group who wants to date, but they don't want to date traditionally. That is that they have tried traditional dating, conventional dating, and there's something about it that just doesn't quite work for mm. them. And so now they are sort of bending or breaking the rules of relationships in order to find partners, casual or serious, that work better for their lifestyle. You're obviously dedicating a lot of time to your third chapter, let's say. You're also just finishing writing a book. Is that correct? Is, it, is that related? Yeah, I mean, I'm completely obsessed with this uh, project. It's, it's interesting. When I first hatched the idea, I, start, I talked to friends and advisors about it. And they came back to me and they said, you know, the humor work is good and it's a, it's a big idea, but this is so much bigger. Okay. I was like, I don't know. It feels early, but um, they were right. I mean, it is a complex, it's much more complex topic than cracking the humor code, to be honest. Yeah. I'm reading history. I'm reading cultural anthropology. I'm reading evolutionary biology. I'm reading sociology. Amazing. I'm reading memoirs. I'm, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm really expanding my um, 
my understanding of the world as a result of this. Mm. And then there's just so many topics to cover. To cover, yeah. Yeah, it's really stretching me. What's the title of your book? The title of the book, so I wrote the book in like 135 days because my publisher wanted it to get it out in January. It's called Solo, Breaking the Rules in a World Built for Two. Nice title. Yeah, it's fun. When can we buy it? Well, you can pre-order it right now, at least in the United States and in the UK. The publisher's working on foreign rights. She, <laughs> she, I talked to my editor today and she said the first set of foreign rights was sold to Estonia. So it will be available for all your Estonian listeners for sure. <laughs> Amazing. Hey, before we finish, because I see the time is running and I wish we had an hour, but like, like more like your format in the in your podcast, but we do have 25 minutes on, on this one. What is your recommendation to the listeners? You know, like imagine young a young generation, young men, young women who are mm-hmm. going to venture into the world of, um, yeah, the working world, basically. Yes. What's your two cents on, on what they should do? Well, you know, I think that the world has changed a lot since I was making this arbitrary decision. I don't think you can get away with arbitrary decisions quite as much hmm. anymore. So I would, I mean, in an age where AI is on the rise, I would look for jobs that don't rely on rules. I would stay away from any job where you're just learning a bunch of rules. I would look at jobs that have a very strong creative component to it in part because those jobs are going to continue to be valued. Hmm. I also happen to believe that those are some of the most fulfilling jobs that you can have, are, and that is jobs where you are creating, you're making stuff, hmm. and you're engaged. I was lucky to stumble into one of those jobs, but now I think we live in a world where you have to be really ruthless about trying to find them hmm. and developing the skills necessary to, uh, to be good at it. Peter, I thank you so much for being uh, here and to speak at the on my mic. If there's a link, I'll put it on. And just for everybody to know, it's uh, not sponsored, nothing. I If I put a link, it's really because I think it's it's going to be interesting for the listeners. So please, um, yeah, let me know for the book and for any other thing. I mean, I'll, I'll also put the podcast, the solo podcast link, which I find is very intriguing, very interesting, funny. <laughs> and yeah, good luck with the, all your ventures. Maybe there will be chapter four. <laughs> sometime I hope so yeah <laughs> I hope yes. so too for you I want to live long enough yeah yes please we still have half a time uh, ahead of us hopefully <laughs> yeah <laughs> and again thank you very much all the best to you you're very kind thanks Laura cheers you have listened to another episode of Job Tales you can follow me on Spotify Apple Podcast and Google Podcast if you want to recommend a guest write me at jobtalespodcast one word at gmail.com Just remember, it's T-A-L-E-S. Bye for now.